Thanks. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. Um, you might have picked up that uh, when we prayed a little while ago, we prayed about the baptism of Jesus. Think, why do we pray about the baptism of Jesus? Today is a day, a day called Epiphany. And Epiphany Sunday is when you uh, celebrate both the baptism of Jesus, but also his presentation to the Magi, which is why we're looking at Matthew chapter 2 today. But the question I want to raise for you today is much more significant one than just what's going on with church calendars, right? What would you do today if God, sometime in the next hour, 20 minutes even, God walked in through that door, came in through that, wafted in through that, however you think God might appear through that? What would you do? How would you cope with that? What, what reaction would you have? Would you expect him to be something like this? You know, the, the whole Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo thing. Is that what God would be like as he came in through? Or perhaps he'd be more like this. You all know him from Evan Almighty, Morgan Freeman, you know, that lovely voice. And he, he actually has done a thing on YouTube called Meeting the Voice of God. And it's all about Morgan Freeman and his experience of God. Uh, but what would it be like if God walked in now? How do you think you would react? What would go through your mind? What would go through your heart as he came in through that door? What would you expect from him? Or how would you relate to him? Well, in our passage today, in that Matthew chapter 2 reading, it brings a number of people into contact with Jesus. They meet Jesus. Who, as we heard a couple of weeks ago, as we came to the Christmas period, is God with us, Emmanuel. And we see how they react to him, how they respond. But the question that is there for all of us is how would we respond? How would we cope with that? So let's turn to our text. Now you will find it very helpful to have the Bible open at Matthew chapter 2 because we'll be looking at it in quite some detail and we'll be going through it bit by bit. If there's parts of the Bible from Matthew 2, I will expect you to have it open Anything else will be up on the screen behind me so that you won't have to flip around the Bible unless you really want to. The very first thing I want to do is give you this picture. It's up on the screen. What's wrong with this picture? Now, I'm not going to ask, actually, for you to call out answers because this could take too long, but there's a number of wrong things wrong with this picture. First of all, as far as we can tell from Matthew 2 and Luke, there's no, not three of them. That's historic. That's, you know, that's not history. They weren't kings, and there were no camels mentioned. So almost everything about that is wrong, except perhaps walking on a mountainside, right? And they were, according to the text anyway, from the Orient, from the East. They were Magi, probably Zoroastrian priests from Media. Now, Media is over towards Persia. It's part of the Persian Empire, which a couple of years ago, when we looked through Daniel, we came across the Medes and the Persians, the area that we would now call Iran. So it is from the east. But it's really crucial to understand something here. Two weeks ago, we heard about the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, he's born in this little town at, um, at, at the time, probably only a couple hundred people. It's this tiny little place in a far distant, though somewhat troublesome province of the Roman Empire. And in chapter one, the most striking part of it is a genealogy. 
Now, most of us, when we read Matthew chapter 1, we skip the genealogy because, man, oh man, it's like reading the phone book. It just drives you mad. There are 42 generations and it goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, through to King David and then generation and to generation until we come to those last three which is where you tend to jump to when it says Methan, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. That, that, that's, that's in a sense what we would think is, is the money part, is the, is the most important bit. And what Matthew is doing, though, is confirming Jesus' bloodline. He's a Jew amongst Jews. You can't see a more Jewish boy than this. Unimpeachable, as King David himself was. But then Matthew does something quite remarkable here. The first people to come looking for this Jewish king are Gentiles other Magi, other people from the East, most likely Persians. They are the ones who come looking for him. And did you hear what they said in verse 2? To worship him. Not just to come and you know, say hi or introduce, but to worship him. These people from outside Israel were looking for, for Jesus to worship him. And so we see that this baby, this king though he is the king of the Jews, is actually much more than that. He's not just for the Jewish people. He's even not just for the Westerners, you know, people talk about Christianity being a religion of the West. No, these Magi were from the East. They came to worship. They were astrologers, fortune tellers, if you want, magicians. And see, what, God, what Matthew is trying to show us here is that God is the God of all the world. He's not just the God of Israel. He's not just the God of the Western world. He's the God of the whole world. And they are following, if you want, the writing in the sky. They're following this, this star that's put there, bringing precious gifts of frankincense and myrrh and gold. Now, most of us have never seen frankincense and myrrh. There's a couple of the natural, what they look like in its natural state, frankincense and myrrh. They are gifts. They're coming from other lands, exactly as had been promised. We read in Psalm 72 about the kings from other lands bringing gifts to the king of Israel. The Gentile kings would come and bow down, would worship the king of Israel. And they were led by a star, his star, they called it. And there are a few ideas, of course, about the natural occurrences that could have described as a star in the time. First of all, it could have been a planetary conjunction. Here's a planetary conjunction. There's a conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter. One happened in 7 BC. Now, it's always one of those funny things that Jesus was born roughly seven years before Christ, but that's just the way the dating happens. That's roughly when we think, because it's when Herod was still alive, and this happened. So they could have been following this very bright planetary conjunction towards the east, towards the west, sorry. It could have been Halley's Comet, which came through in about 10 BC, it's probably a bit early. It could have been a supernova, being an astro astronomer, of course, I love that idea, it's a great thought, but we have no way of proving that. Or perhaps it was, as has been believed for many centuries, a completely miraculous heavenly light. We just don't know. But whatever the answer is, the simple answer is that 
Whatever it was, it was impeccably timed. It was perfectly timed because it brought the Magi from far away to the King of Kings and they were drawn to him. And these Magi, you see, came to Jesus and worshipped him. The second one we come across is Herod. Herod the murderer. Now, this is all on your outline. I'm up to the second sub-point on the back here if you want to take notes or jot down questions. He was king of Israel at the time, was Herod. Herod the Great, 40 to 4 BC, who was king because he was elected king by Rome. Interesting way of becoming king, isn't it? To be elected by another country. After his father, Antipater, was put there and protected by Rome as a puppet ruler. But Herod actually was a great king. He was a great builder. He built the temple in Jerusalem, the third temple. He was a, built the great winter palace of Herodium, which is just down the road. And he did the Caesar Maritima, which is this wonderful place. By He was a great builder. And he was a great politician. He lasted 36 years as king and died a natural death, which is very rare in the ancient world, to die a natural death, not be killed by one of your kids. He, yeah, don't get any ideas, right? He was also himself a great killer. He had a bad reputation. He killed his wife. He killed her brother and her mother. He killed his first two sons and his heir and son, Archelaus. He was an immoral murderer. And this one, this Herod, hears about the birth of Jesus and fears the threat. That's what Matthew means when he says in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. It's not just disturbed, like, mm, that's upsetting. No, he was terrified. And all Jerusalem with him were troubled. In the same way that he feared the threat of his sons usurping his throne, so he feared this baby who had brought kings from the east or brought the Magi from the east. So what he did next was completely in character with what we know of Herod. First, he feigned interest and he tried to deceive the Magi. Matthew chapter 2, verse 7. Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. But of course, the Magi found out that the Herod really was a deceiver and they returned without telling him anything. So Herod, true to form, does one of the most appalling things in the Bible. Just as Pharaoh had done to Israel in their captivity, so Herod ordered what is now called the slaughter of the innocents. Every boy under the age of two in the area, was to be killed. So that was sort of the time period that the Magi had given him. To somehow or other, they'd been travelling perhaps for that long and thought he might be that old. But why was Herod so terrified? Well, it's because of the promises. Matthew chapter 2, verse 4. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. You see, it was telling, telling, telling enough that the king himself, Herod, didn't know where the Messiah was coming from. But clearly, he, Herod, 
was not the one on view. He was not God's chosen king. He was not coming from Bethlehem. He was not the one. Rather, it was this king born in this little town near Jerusalem. And we heard that in Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, that's the proper name of the little town, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Now Herod was almost certainly in his summer palace, uh, winter palace in Herodium. Um, It was that one we saw before. Herodium was five kilometres south of Bethlehem, so he could look out of his north window and see Bethlehem just there, like this, just over on that little hill. That's Bethlehem. It's just over there. And there's the place, there's the star. The threat is so close. The threat is just here. So he feared. He feared for his throne and he feared for his life. So he did that horrible, appalling thing and without realising it, fulfilled what had been prophesied by Jeremiah 600 years before. Matthew 2, verse 17. A voice is heard in Ramah. That's the area. Weeping and great mourning. Rachel, mother of Israel, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. But this was not to be the fate of Jesus. The Herod the murderer was not to win because God acted to preserve his Messiah by sending a dream to Joseph. Now, Joseph is one of those characters in the Bible who doesn't get much of a looking like he's got little bits here and there but he doesn't actually appear after the trip to the temple when Jesus is eight so he goes off the scene who knows what happens he could be dead who knows but here he plays a crucial role in saving his son God's son from the hand of Herod verse 13 when they'd gone an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream get up he said Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to... uh, And take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. I don't know quite what to make of this, but there's an interesting pattern here. There's almost a symmetry going on. In the Old Testament book of Genesis, the patriarch Joseph is taken to Egypt and interprets dreams there. And he saves his family by taking them to Egypt. And the Joseph in the Matthew account has a dream and takes his family to Egypt to save them as well. And this is probably, I think, because strong links are being drawn to the prophecy that Matthew recounts for us from the Old Testament prophecy of Hosea. It's up on the board, up on the screen. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So it was all to have this come about. And the family stayed there. They stayed in Egypt until Herod died when they returned to live in Galilee. So he got up, took the child, verse 21, and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now, Archelaus deserved fear. 
Um, Freddie Bruce says this. He was Herod's elder son by his Samaritan wife, Malface, and has the worst reputation of all the sons of Herod. That's got to be pretty bad. So they returned to Galilee, well outside of Herod Archelaus' territory. But before we progress, I want to point out the detail here that Matthew goes into. He mentions Archelaus by name, who we know was Herod's son in Judea, straight after Herod the Great. He was the one who took over Herod's kingdom and it's indicated that it was safer to be in Galilee because it wasn't in Archelaus' territory. Here we see that it's not in Archelaus' territory. So Nazareth is way up north outside of his areas. See that pink part is Archelaus and then that's um, uh, Antipater is in the, the darker pink. So, when we examine the historicity of what Matthew is saying, the historicity of the Bible in detail, we find time after time, the authors get the details right. They show us actually what we know was happening from other places as well. But the point of all this is not to show that Matthew can get the details right. But it's in the second part of the verse, in verse 22. Having been warned in a dream, He withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. See, the purpose wasn't to prove how accurate Matthew can be, but to show that the prophets would be fulfilled. That's what's driving this account. That this child, this child is the one who's fulfilling all those prophecies from hundreds of years ago who foretold that he would be despised and rejected. Nazarene to us just means someone from Nazareth. But Nazarene then was something much more. It was a swear word almost, a term of derision. In John's Gospel, which we looked at last year, when Nathaniel hears of Jesus of Nazareth, he responds in exactly that way in John chapter 1, verse 4. It's Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You see, this child is to be despised, threatened, and yet Matthew shows us that he was actually an unexpected saviour because he is God with us. Emmanuel, verse 23 of chapter 1. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now that's the other side of the meeting. Not only are they meeting the king of the Jews, they are meeting Emmanuel. They're meeting God with us. God taken on flesh, walking amongst us. And so the simple answer is to know God, to know the invisible God, then look and meet Jesus because he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. God come amongst us. Or as the Apostle John says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. And as extraordinary as that is, he's also something else. He's Jesus. And as we note, names have meanings. They indicate something. And Jesus' name is Joshua or Yeshua, which means saviour. So he's called God with us 
and he's called Saviour. As Matthew says, Matthew 1.21, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now that's unexpected. This little baby born in the backwaters of the Roman Empire, small town outside of Jerusalem, will save his people from their sins? Really? Not save them from Rome? Not save them from bad things happening, not even save them from themselves, but from their sins. From their inbuilt and natural rejection of God, which is where we are as a human race. We all reject our ruler, God, and so we are all under God's judgment. We all need saving. And Jesus comes as the one who will save his people. But this rescue, this this salvation from deserved punishment does not come just from Jesus being born, but born so that he could become our representative, to walk in our shoes, to experience the human condition, drink deeply at the well of joy and happiness and pain and suffering. And so to understand us, to represent us, to be us. See, God has walked a mile in our shoes. And so he does understand us. But he's also our substitute. He stands in our place. The Apostle Peter puts it like this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now, that doesn't mean that we're all completely evil, but it does mean that we're all out of relationship with God. That's what unrighteous means, out of relationship with God by nature. That's what sin is. And Jesus deals with that sin, not just by sweeping it under the table and ignoring it or pretending it doesn't happen, but by suffering, by going to the cross, by dying in our place, taking the just judgment for our sins, he dies so that we might have eternal life. You see, meeting Jesus at his birth is very easy. It's it's so, you know, babies are cute and cuddly as long as they're not crying too much, they're They're wonderful to have. We've got a new little baby in our family and she's just gorgeous. We love her to death. You know, my my granddaughter Matilda. It's so... And the nativity scene, you see it everywhere, don't you? It's this wonderful expression of, of cuteness and family and these nice little donkeys and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. It's so... Now, there's nothing wrong with any of that. It's a good thing. But Christmas actually has a dark side. Birth actually has a dark side. I remember so clearly when my daughter was born, my firstborn, after we went through the initial few minutes of elation and relief, um, that that all, everything was okay, I remember leaning over and saying to Janet, this means one day we're going to have a teenager. And we did. And she was a wonderful teenager, let me say. But now that's a joke. You laughed at it, of course. But the reality is that every birth ends up in the same place, doesn't it? 
every birth ends up in death. In medicine, we say that the mortality rate, despite all our advances, is still 100%. But the important thing here is that the one who is greeted as king of the Jews in his birth is crucified as king of the Jews in his death, but is also crucified as the saviour of the world. To truly meet Jesus is not just to encounter him as this Jewish king in the midst of worship, intrigue and rescue, but to encounter him as saviour, saviour of his people, saviour of the world, saviour of you and of me. So that begs the question, have you met Jesus? Well, yes, you have. Ever so briefly, even if it's just been today, as we've heard from Matthew's Gospel, as he's presented to us the infant Jesus. Or more so, perhaps, if you've been to church before, you've heard it a few times, or if you count yourself a follower of Jesus already. And if you count yourself as a follower of Jesus, if you are already a Christian, then remember his birth was for a reason. His birth was for our life. As the carol says, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. You see, we've been given a second birth. And so now, live a new life. Commit to meeting Jesus in his word, meeting him as your Lord and Saviour, meeting him as your King. And if you haven't yet followed Jesus or made up your mind about it, then the opportunity is here. You can know more. You can meet Jesus. Not just in the sanitised stories of the baby with donkeys and mangers and three kings, but in the nitty-gritty of the life of a child born in humble circumstances, fulfilling the expectations of a thousand years of prophecy who lived and taught and finally went to a grisly and humiliating death on a cross for us, for you, for me, to save us from our sins. That is great news. That is an enormous freedom. That is a great opportunity. If you don't own a Bible, we've got lots of Bibles here that we would love you to take home with you. Please take one. Talk to someone about it. Ask questions. You can do something about it today. Later on, we'll give you a little connection card that you'll have a QR code for. Just say, I'd like to find out more. Reach out today because you can know this king who was born as saviour of the world. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, please open our eyes to your glory in your Son, Jesus Christ. Open our hearts to see him truly. Soften our hearts to follow him in love and in truth as our crucified Saviour, raised again to new life for us all. May we put our trust fully in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we're going to sing again. We're going to sing... In Christ Alone, which is this wonderful song about how hope is to be found only in the Lord Jesus Christ.